Amen. Amen. Well, awesome. So we are continuing our series called Questioning Jesus. And uh, if you haven't been following with us, this is a series where we're looking at not the questions that we ask Jesus, because we ask him a lot of questions, right? But we're looking at the questions that Jesus asks us in Scripture. And so we've been, it has been a really fun and challenging series. It's been fun walking through this series and hearing Jason during the week as he processes his news, like, this is what the Holy Spirit is teaching me. He's like, this is crazy. You know, I didn't think, you know, I would get this from this. And so it's been this beautiful thing. And, and the question that he gave me was a little difficult, and he knew it, and that's okay. Um, but we're going to, first I want to ask you to open up to Mark chapter 8, verse 11 through 13. Uh, it should be on the digital sermon notes. If you have a Bible, Bible app, whatever you're using, or you just want to follow along on the screen, it'll be on the screen as well. So real quick, I'm going to be in Mark 8. I'm reading from the ESV. This morning, uh, for those of you who, uh, you know, are used to one translation, there's no correct, perfect translation. This is just a translation I'm using. It's totally okay. You use whatever translation you like. Um, but we're in Mark 8, starting 11 and going through verse 13. So the Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again with his disciples, and went to the other side. Now I want to give a little bit of background about what's happening. This is a small chunk of scripture, but there is a lot to understand about the context, about what has just been happening, and, and what sign the Pharisees are asking for here, um, and why Jesus is so upset. And so one thing you need to know is that Jesus has been ministering to all these people all throughout um, the, the Israel nation over here, right? It's conquered by Rome, but he's also been in the Gentile areas too. So he goes back and forth. And anytime, a fun fact I learned actually last week is anytime you read Jesus went to the other side, he's actually going to the next audience. He's going back and forth between the Jewish audience and the Gentile audience. It's a fun little nerd fact. Uh, do with that what you will. But the thing is, Jesus has been performing all these signs, all these miracles. He's been healing people. He's been feeding these crowds from nothing. And yet these Pharisees are coming to him, and they want more. Not only do they want more, but they actually don't want what Jesus has already been doing. They're like, hey, it's great that you can feed 4,000 people, 5,000 people. Uh, there's multiple numbers. Fun fact, he fed multiple crowds. It's great that you can do all these things. It's great that you can heal all these people. It's great that you can raise people from the dead. That's all fine and good. But we want a sign from heaven, and a sign from heaven, what they're talking about is they want Jesus to rain fire down from the sky, or they want manna to come out of the ground, or they want somehow some sort of big giant message in the sky that says, hey, guess what, I'm the Messiah, and they want him to prove himself. They want to test him, and at the same time, they want to test him to see if he is who he truly is, but they also want to see if he doesn't do it, because if he doesn't do it, it's easier to arrest him. It's easier to get him in trouble. It's easier to punish him and get him out of their way. The first thing, I want to kind of dive closer into the question, why does this generation demand a sign? And Jesus is obviously hurt by this because he knows their hearts. He knows their intentions. He knows they're trying to trap him. But he also sees the more evil side of this. They think they can tell him to jump and he'll jump. And that's actually the first point I want to look at. Well, uh, take that back. I want to dive into why we test God in the first place. Why do we test God? Why do we tempt God? Why do we try to make God prove himself? This isn't asking Jesus for guidance. 
Okay? This isn't asking God, Lord, uh, I'm trying to make this decision. I'm at a crossroads. I need you to show me what to do. That is not what's happening here. This message would actually be a lot easier if it was. Uh, trust me. It's not that. And this is the kind of thing where they are asking Jesus for this ridiculous sign because they're refusing to let what he's doing to be enough. And so we need to look at why, we, why do humans test God? Why do we try to make him prove who he is, right? Well, the first thing is we don't actually revere him as Lord. We don't actually revere and respect him as Lord. Second thing is our faith is shaky, it's unstable, or it's lazy, and we want him to do all the heavy lifting for us. And the third thing, the third thing, we're going to dive into more in the application, but the world has convinced us that anything less than a big show, a big flashy show, or ridiculous sign is not worth our attention. And so the first point I want us to look at is that tempting Jesus to perform means that we have already kicked him off of his throne. Tempting Jesus to perform means that we have already kicked him off of his throne. Matthew 12 actually is, is a more extended version of this passage. Mark is referred to as kind of the, kind of the uh, what, what's the word? This is kind of the, the short, concise gospel. Matthew actually expands on this passage, and Jesus responds to their question. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign is going to be given except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah I'll dive into later. But right now I want us to focus on what he says. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. It takes a lot of corruption. It takes a very narcissistic heart to ask God to do tricks for us. Jesus calls it evil. And if you want to kind of understand how evil it actually is, I want us to take a quick look at Matthew 4 verses 5 through 7. So Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he's praying, he's fasting, he's out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil, Satan, Satan, the deceiver, is coming to him and trying to tempt him, trying to get him to do all this stuff. So we're all kind of seeing the, the evil that's taking place, but I want us to dive into this passage real quick. Then the devil took him to the holy city. And he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. He said, if you are the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, if you really are the Messiah, if you really are who you are and who you're saying you are, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's tempting Jesus with Scripture. And Jesus says to him, again, it is written, you will not put the Lord your God to the test. Testing God to make him prove himself is, this hurts, this stings, this stings me just to say it, right? But, but when we test God and we try to make him prove himself to us, we're acting no better than the devil. Yee! Like that hurts because we, and we are forgetting our place. We're forgetting that, that, that we're not God. And we're pretending that we're God. And we think that we, think that we can tell God to jump and he'll jump. We can th tell, think we can tell God to do a backflip and he'll do a backflip. We don't have that kind of power. Thank goodness. But we forget that so much. And so I want us to take a look again at what the Pharisees are doing. They come up to him, they begin to argue with him, and they're seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. The entire goal of the Pharisees is not to give glory to Jesus. It's not to honor Jesus. It's not to recognize who he is. It's to use him. 
It's to use them and to make him cater to what they want. And it's a purely transactional thing. And the thing is, relationship with God and relationship with humans is not meant to be that way. You're not supposed to approach God or human beings with, what can I get out of this and not contribute at all? What can I take away from this purely out of selfish motives and not have to give a care in the world about the other. One of my biggest examples of this is something that's actually prevalent in my culture, my generation, is this thing called hookup culture. And it's this very dark thing where young people think that any kind of, uh, I'll use the word relational here, I know there's children in the room, any kind of relational experience is some sort, just, just there to give them some sort of high. They're like, what can I get from this person? And what can I totally just not have this attachment, right? What can I get out of them and not have to care about them at all? And maybe you don't struggle with the whole sexual side of hookup culture. Maybe you don't struggle with that kind of emptiness or numbness or whatever it is. But maybe you are at work and you have coworkers that you are so caught up in, what can they do for me? What little assignments can I have them do for me and not give them any respect, not to give them any credit, not give them any care, not thank them at all? What, what, are, what are some ways that you take advantage of people? What are some ways you try to use people and are so caught up in this self-seeking, this me-focused ideology where you are just, you're just so focused on using people and you totally forget that people are people and you forget that God is God. And if you are in this dark place of what can I just get out of this person without having to care about them, what does that look like in your life, right? And why, do, why is that a thing? We need to understand that God does not exist to serve us. And fun fact, uh, people don't really exist to serve you either. Fun fact. Uh, God does not exist to serve us. God is not our genie. He is not our butler. In fact, this was, yeah, this is, this is not really a real point, but I thought it was important enough to write down and put on the screen. God is not your butler or your genie. In real relationships with God and with people are not transactional. Real relationships are not transactional. We don't use God. He's holy, and He's worth so much more than us thinking He's our little errand boy. He's God. He deserves respect. He deserves glory. He deserves dignity. He deserves all that we have. And we need to let that drive how we perceive Him and also how we treat other people. We need to remember our place. We're not God. God doesn't exist to serve us. I want to go to the second point real quick. If we have to ask God to prove himself, then we already lack faith. If we have to ask God to prove himself, we're already lacking faith, right? This means we're wanting God to do all of the heavy lifting of faith, all of the things that that requires for us. That's not faith. That's just you being lazy. That's just you not caring enough. That is you not wanting to put in the hard work. And, and I want to make something clear real quick. There's a big difference between wrestling with your faith and not having any at all. When you're wrestling with your faith, 
When you're wrestling with your faith, you're going to come to moments where you ask God, God, I need you right now. I need you right now. And that's okay. But when you don't have any faith, and you're like, God, I just need you to prove yourself to me, you're not, that is not how that works. Faith, faith is believing. Hebrews 11 tells us this, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's difficult. It's difficult. And I know that as humans, we want these tangible things to believe in. And God knows this, right? He sees it. But he talks about how he rewards faith because it is hard. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him. And even Jesus tells us to the disciples in John 20, so to give a little bit of background, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He was crucified. He was buried in the tomb for three days. He rose from the grave. And he's starting to appear to the disciples, right? And they're all seeing this. Thomas, he's called, we like to call him Doubtful Thomas. Thomas says to the disciples, he says, unless I see where the nails were in his wrists, Unless I see where the spear pierced his side, I'm not going to believe. So Thomas, he's called Doubtful Thomas for a reason, he is lacking faith. He wants that tangible proof. And Jesus is gracious enough to give it to him. And so he says to Thomas in verse 27, he says, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas, he responds, right? He believes now because he's seeing Jesus. He says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, the, the beauty of, of, of God knowing us is that he knows that real faith is hard. Real faith is hard, and God knows this, but I think we need to focus on how he's going to bless us if we have it. Because he, he doesn't want us to ask him to do the heavy lifting for us. He knows that faith is hard. He has done this amazing thing. He has sent Jesus Christ, his one and only son, to die on the cross for our sins and take all that away. He wants that. He wants us to believe it. Not because we've seen it. We can't rewind time and go back to the year 33 AD to watch that happen, right? We can't do that. But we're told it is by grace, through faith, that we have been saved, Right? Through faith, he wants us to believe and trust him. That's the whole point of this relationship. God is worth our trust. And he rewards that. Why? Because, not because it's some sort of thing where, hey, if you believe in me, I'll give you $5. He's not saying that. What's happening is he loves us and he rejoices when we have enough faith and trust and hope in him because that's what we're made for. And he delights in that because this world is broken and we abandon our purpose so much. And so, it's kind of a shorter message just because I know we're pressed for time, but I want to dive into application real quick. What in the world do we do with this? This is kind of an obscure passage, kind of an interesting thing where, where it, it's not as simple as just asking God for guidance, right? This is very different, asking God to do all these big, giant writing in the sky things. So what in the world do we do with this passage? What do we do with this question? Why does this generation demand a sign? So the first thing we need to know is that we need to remember that God is on his throne and that we're not. We need to remember that God is on his throne and that we aren't. I want to encourage you, and I'm saying this to myself too, don't kick God off the throne. Don't kick God off the throne. Let him be Lord in your life. Let him be sovereign over your life, all right? You can trust him. 
You can trust him. Why? Because he's the only one who actually knows what he's doing if we're being entirely honest. He's the only one who's writing the story. We are the creation. We're not the creator. And so when we, if we get to this point of where we forget who we are, if we forget that we're not God, we start asking God to do all these ridiculous things as if he's our butler. We have a very skewed vision of who we are and who God is. And so please remember that God is on his throne and that you're not on his throne. Second thing, we need to get comfortable with faith being uncomfortable. And this makes me cringe every time because as human beings, like I said, we want that tangibility. We want those things to be proven to us, right? Faith is scary. Life is unpredictable. So when you combine the unpredictability of life with faith being this, this thing that, that we can't actually tangibly see, like, like I cannot tangibly see Jesus standing right in front of me right now, right? And when life gets crazy, that's a little hard. I'm like, God, are you here? You know, like it, it's horrifying. And that's why it's so valuable. It's because we are putting our trust, we are putting our hope in what is not seen. And we have to remember that we're not in control. Like I said, we're not the author of the story. This isn't your story that you're writing. Ever. Ever. You make choices, yes, but it is all within God's plan. Okay? It is all God's will. And you are not in control. And I'd rather have my faith in the God who is in control of every circumstance going on, who knows the background, who knows what's on the flip side of everything I'm going through, than just depend on myself and have this, this, this awful, empty, lonely, isolated perspective on life. We need to remember that he's holding on to us. Whether we see it or not, grow comfortable with being uncomfortable. Third thing. We need to look for God in the ordinary moments of everyday life. So earlier, I said one of the reasons why we demand signs from God is because we think that anything less than something big, huge, and ridiculous is not worth our time. But I want to encourage you guys to quit looking and demanding for God to do all these big, fancy things. I want you to take a look outside. Y'all ever, like, look outside and think, golly, those are some really pretty clouds. Or that's a really cool flower. I'll look at flowers sometimes, all right? I'm not afraid to talk about that. Like, butterflies. Like, I'm very secure. In my, yeah, like, like there's, there's such a beauty to the childlike wonder of finding God in the everyday moments of your life. It can be in your family members, your conversations with your kids or your spouse or your parents, whoever. Like, God is in those moments just as much as he's in these big moments. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this is Elijah on the mountaintop. So the prophet Elijah, he's running for his life, and he's going, and he's alone with the Lord on the mountain, and he's looking for God in all these big things. There's an earthquake. There's a giant earthquake. And Elijah's like, oh, man, maybe God's like in that. But it says that God was not in the earthquake. There's a big fire. God wasn't in the fire. He, he's in the storm. He's not in this storm. He's not in this flood. Like all of these cool, big, crazy things that he would expect God to show up in, God is not in it. But how does he come to Elijah? He comes to Elijah in a still, small whisper. And so I want to ask you, what are the still, small whispers that you're ignoring? That God is pointing you towards himself and using to point you towards himself every single day, but you're just overlooking it. This week, that's my challenge to you. I want you to look for that. Embrace that childlike wonder. And lastly, we need to let the gospel be enough. 
need to let the gospel be enough. What I said earlier, Jesus says, why does this generation demand a sign? A crooked and evil generation demands a sign, but no sign is going to be given except for the sign of Jonah. Now, what in the world does that mean? Like, we know that Jonah was swallowed by the whale. He's a prophet. He was sent to Nineveh. There's a VeggieTales movie on it that is really awesome, great music. I loved it. Grew up with it as a kid. He's swallowed by a whale. Three days. He's in, he's in this whale's uh, system. And for three days, he should have died. He should have died. And that's why the Ninevites are kind of freaked out when he shows up. Because they're like, dude, you smell? He's like, let me tell you why I smell. Also, this is what God is saying. Jesus is saying, no, no sign is going to be given except for the sign of Jonah. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jonah was in the depths of the whale, right, for three days. Jesus was crucified. And he was in the tomb for three days. Jonah was vomited out of the whale. He surpassed what should have been death. Jesus actually did conquer death. He resurrected from the grave. He shows up and he says, he's essentially saying to the Pharisees, he's like, hey, I'm not going to do what you want, but what I'm going to do, you need to let that be enough. And I think today, ladies and gentlemen, we need to remember that nothing is more miraculous than the gospel. Nothing is more miraculous than the gospel, and we should not be asking God to do more than what he's already done by fully like, sending us himself, right? We should not be asking him to do more than what he's already done by giving us his everything because nothing can top that. Nothing can top that. So don't ask for more than the gospel because that's the biggest thing he's ever done. History is literally centered around it, B.C., A.D. It's a big deal. Y'all, I love y'all. This is kind of a hard message. I'm not going to lie. This is a little different. But, um, but, I, but I love you, and I really do hope, especially the application stuff, I really do hope that you're challenged, because I was challenged. This, this hurt to, like, to write and to go through. But I hope you're challenged, and I hope that you're also encouraged. And I just want to remind you all, let God be God. Let the gospel be enough. And look for him in the everyday stuff, because that's a lot of fun. Uh, let's pray real quick. Dear God, thank you so much for this day. God, we love you, and uh, man, we, we apologize for the times that maybe we've asked you to do more than you've already done for us. God, we apologize for the times that we have asked you to prove yourself to us. We apologize for the times that we've forgotten our place, we've forgotten that you're God and we're not. You're the author, we're just the little, little teeny tiny side characters. Lord, I just ask that you would remind us this week of all the different ways that you show up that we don't notice. Would you remind us that the gospel is enough? Would you remind us of our place? God, most importantly, would you remind us how much you love us even when we fail, even when we want to be you? So Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. God, I just ask that you would just be with everyone as they go out today. In your name I pray. Amen.